0: Tonight on The Readout. When honest people say what's true calmly and without embarrassment, they become powerful. At the same time, the liars who've been trying to silence them shrink and they become weaker. That's the iron law of the universe. True things prevail.
1: Yes, indeed. True things do prevail, Tuckums, like how it turns out you really are as repulsively racist as the guy that you once played on TV. Who'd have thunk it? And now you can add hospital waiting rooms to the ever-expanding list of places where you can be shot and killed in gun-crazy America. Senator Raphael Warnock is here to talk about today's deadly shooting in Atlanta. And we've got the latest on Texas Republicans' unprecedented push to give one hand-picked official the power to overturn election results in the state's largest Democratic-leaning county. But we begin tonight with how white nationalist receipts can get you fired, even from Fox. The New York Times reports damning text messages Tucker Carlson sent to a producer after he watched a video of Trump supporters attacking a, quote, Antifa kid, led Fox management to say, yeah, he's got to go. The text exchange occurred a day after the January 6th insurrection. According to, the texts, according to the Times, the texts were redacted in the court filings in the Dominion case, but the contents were disclosed in interviews with several people close to the defamation suit against Fox. A representative for Tucker told the Times that he had no comment. Fox also did not respond to a request by the Times for comment. But the texts were revealing for the man who made white replacement theory standard fare on Fox and in the Republican Party. So Tucker texted that he had recently watched a video in which, quote, a group of Trump guys surrounded an Antifa kid and started pounding the living S out of him. It was three against one, at least. Jumping a guy like that is dishonorable, obviously. It's not how white men fight. Did you catch that? Not how white men fight. Okay. he continues. Yet suddenly I found myself rooting for the mob against the man, hoping they'd hit him harder, kill him. I really wanted them to hurt the kid. I could taste it. Then something deep in my brain, an alarm went off. This isn't good for me. I'm becoming something I don't want to be. The Antifa creep is a human being, much as I despise what he says and does, much as I'm sure I'd hate him personally if I knew him, I shouldn't gloat over his suffering. That kind of weird, odd 19th century eugenicist talk should be of no surprise to anyone who's seen what is arguably the show of record for white grievance.
0: White supremacy, that's the problem. This is a hoax. We're still not precisely sure how George Floyd died. Very few unarmed black men are killed by white cops these days. Where's George Floyd when you need him? The only job training program this administration has gotten behind in two and a half years is getting black people to sell more weed in the cities. Ilhan Omar is living proof that the way we practice immigration has become dangerous to this country. We have a moral obligation to admit the world's poor, they tell us, even if it makes our own country poorer and dirtier and more divided.
1: When people show you who they are, believe them, the great Maya Angelou said. Similarly, journalist Adam Serwer tweeted last night, I can't believe Tucker Carlson is exactly who he appeared to be, which is racist and also a violence-loving weirdo. And this is not how white men fight? Like, what does that even mean? White men don't fight unless it's some civilized duel with antique pistols? What about when they fought on January 6th? Beating the hell out of police, tasing, bear spraying, and trying to kill them. White men don't fight like that, Tucker? What about the atrocities waged by Europeans, like the Holocaust? Or the U.S. Army's war against Native Americans that helped to wipe 90% of indigenous people off this continent? I mean, they sliced off Native people's scalps in the name of civilization. What about slavery? Seemed pretty violent to me. I mean, history books are still legal, Tucker. Or lynching! Mob violence, torture, using giant hoses and police dogs on young people fighting for basic human rights. I mean, no people on this earth are immune from violence in their histories, Tucker. What about your boy Vladimir Putin and what he's doing to Ukraine? They're literally raping women and stealing children. That is how they're fighting. Please explain, Tucker. Oh, that's right, you can't. You don't have a TV show anymore because Fox News had a problem with this particular text which the New York Times said set off a panic at the highest levels of Fox on the eve of its billion-dollar defamation trial, which is interesting and also confusing. It is an alarming text, make no mistake, gross even, but not exactly revealing. The network, led by Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch, had no problem with the racist bile Tucker emitted on its air in primetime every night. In fact, Tucker's hate parade was ratings gold, which is why Fox tolerated it, maybe even encouraged it. Which brings us to the question, why would this one text message change anything? Did Fox finally see what millions of Americans, along with the Anti-Defamation League, LGBTQ, and Black Lives Matter activists have been screaming from the keyboards for years? Eh, It doesn't seem likely. Perhaps what Fox management really feared was a spectacle of Tuckums reading that text and maybe others on the stand in the upcoming trials they're still facing, proving that his on-air screeds weren't just an act. And that Tucker was just as racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, and horrible behind the scenes as he was on TV. That his thoughts about violence and race were real, not pretend. And that they weren't just for entertainment. And that was a fact just too damaging, even for a network that is hooked on lies. I'm joined now by Tara Setmeyer, Lincoln Project senior advisor, former Republican communications director and UVA Center for Politics scholar, and Charlie Sykes editor-at-large for The Bulwark, an MSNBC columnist and contributor. Um, I will start with you, Charlie, because you, you and I, we've lived in the world of talk radio for a time, right? And, you know, there is a certain amount of outrageousness in talk radio that is encouraged. But, on, you know, on Fox, the level of it was—it yeah. was Rush Limbaugh times, like, ten. I mean, he was just saying stuff that used to be considered just straight-up white nationalism. And they didn't have a problem with that. So why do you think this one text about him saying, that's not how white men fight, which is a really odd thing to say, by the way. Yeah. Very odd thing to say in the 21st century. Why do you think that got him bounced?
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm not buying this. Actually, uh, Joy, and I think you've laid out the reasons why. i You know, and I think Ari Melber also made the point in the, in the last hour. Uh, so we're supposed to believe that Fox executives and board members were shocked, shocked to find out that their leading star was was a racist. I mean, think about all the things he said on the air. You played a small montage of what he did night after night after night. There's no secret about this. This is who Tucker Carlson is. None of that caused them to move to fire him. And we're supposed to believe now that this one text message just was so shocking and appalling that they had to pull the trigger. So I'm not buying uh, this because they had tolerated so much. Um, I think obviously there's a campaign um, out there, a PR campaign. And you know I'm, I'm certainly not going to come to Tucker Carlson's defense here. But this is not what did it. They cannot justify keeping him on the air while he was pushing the great replacement theory and saying the things he was saying night after night. New York Times did a big front page story saying that this was the most racist show in the history of cable television. And Tucker Carlson thought that was a big joke. Are we supposed to believe the Murdochs didn't see that story, that they didn't know what they were putting out on the air? So I'm I'm sorry, I'm just not buying the fact that this was the smoking text that did Tucker in.
1: I'm with you. I mean, let me just read this. This is about. This is from the New Yorker. This is actually from April, um, uh, the April edition of the New Yorker. This is how powerful this guy was. Uh, both the management against the, t- the, the the movement, sorry, against the teaching of critical race theory and the right wing interest in Viktor Orban's Hungary blossomed on Car- Carlson's show. JD Vance rode regular appearances on it to a seat in the U.S. Senate after Senator Ted Cruz. Sorry, called the January 6th insurrection a violent terrorist attack. Carlson forced him to walk back that comment. Carlson grilled Governor Greg Abbott of Texas about why he hadn't called up more National Guard soldiers at the border. And Abbott did it. The host also suggested that if people who live in places like Martha's Vineyard were so keen on diversity, someone should send undocumented immigrants there. Not long afterwards, Ron DeSantis did it. Uh, Greg Abbott is about to pardon someone just because he told him to, even though the guy said, I'm going to kill some Black Lives Matter uh, people. And then he did. (laughs) I mean, uh, I'm going to throw this over to you, Tara. I mean, there's no evidence that Fox News has any problem with people being racist on their TV. So why would this one text of him saying that's not how white men fight? Why would that get him bounced?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, to Charlie's point, I don't think that that was the the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, it, Fox News and Rupert Murdoch and all of the people on Fox's board, including, including Paul Ryan, people who we thought were supposed to be reasonable and who should have known better, they stood back and allowed this to go on for years. Tucker Carlson engaged in some of the most vile, racist language in this country that has done incredible damage to our democracy, to our culture. It's ripped apart families, people who, who during the Trump era, you know, we talk about how families were, uh, you know, couldn't talk to each other at Thanksgiving anymore because of the divide. Where do you think they were getting a lot of that propaganda and indoctrination from? It was straight from Fox News, and Tucker Carlson was the loudest megaphone. And he was allowed to spew this garbage unvarnished, uncensored, without rebuke, for years, hundreds upon hundreds of episodes where he talked about the Great Replacement Theory, hundreds of episodes where he uh, where he attacked people of color or dismissed white supremacy, or dozens and dozens of episodes where he would use language that was curated straight out of the white supremacist right-wing far reaches of the internet from websites like V-Dare and other well-known disgusting extremists websites, he would use that type of language. And he mainstreamed it. He was the hero of white supremacists. He was the hero of these extremists on the on the right. And you look at how many in, in, in some of these cases where you had these um, horrific mass shootings that were inspired by xenophobia or racism or, or anti-Semitism, how many of them used language that came out of either Donald Trump's mouth or Tucker Carlson's megaphone on Fox News? So yeah. this is who Tucker Carlson is. I'm not surprised by that. He's a despicable human being. And we're seeing this on full display. But let's not let Fox News get away with the fact that they financed it. They platformed it and they continue to do so because there are others on their network that spew similar language that are auditioning to replace Tucker Carlson. Jesse Waters, I'm talking to you.
1: Well, speaking of Jesse, oh, look, you, we did not plan this. Let me just go ahead and play because this is what's on their <laughs> air now. This isn't like, and Jesse Waters did one of the classic, most racist uh, segments ever, he even made Tucker Carlson say, Hold my beer against Chinese Americans in the past. Here's new Jesse. Here he is.
0: Now, I saw on the way into work a illegal immigration family digging through the trash looking for recyclables. How
1: did
3: you know they were illegal?
0: You can tell. And I can tell I'm a city guy.
1: (laughs) I mean, Charlie, that's Tucker. That's what Tucker gone. The whole network. It's not like the whole it's not like Laura Ingraham and Jesse Waters are like, oh, good. You know, now we're back to like the Paul Ryan Republican Party. This is the Paul Ryan Republican Party at this point. Well.
0: It, you know, I mean, look, uh, obviously the memo didn't go out uh, saying, you know, hey, no more, uh, you know, overtly racist things like that. But to Tara's point, I think it is important to remember, though, how uniquely malign, how uniquely dangerous Tucker Carlson was, the kinds of theories that he mainstreamed, the kinds of things that uh, they that were talking about, you know, pulling things from V-Dare, uh, putting ideas out there that had been confined to the far, uh, you know, reaches of the fever swamp. And, you know, you mentioned Paul Ryan. Um I wrote an open Letter to him more than a year ago in Politico saying, uh, Paul, if you're ever gonna, you know, take a stand, this would be the time, and listing all the kinds of things that Tucker Carlson was saying on the air. And I confronted him with it in February. He said he hadn't read it, but we were yeah. talking about it. And even in February, Paul Ryan was saying, Well, I disagree with Tucker Carlson. He knew what Tucker Carlson was doing, but until last week, nobody was willing to do anything about it, which is why my you know my My BS meter is pretty high on this. You know, yes, they were shocked and appalled that he wrote this one thing about white men fighting because just not. (laughs) But you know why.
1: The 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 reality.
2: reality. Of course. It was ratings. And we know, we know that Fox News monitors ratings all the way down to minute by minute target groups. Mm -hmm. So they knew that fear and that this type of of language, this this idea of the other, that that stuff was gold for them in ratings, unfortunately, because it it preyed on the lowest common denominator of our culture. And that sold. So he was their golden goose. And they were willing to sell out our country, our culture, our democracy, all for ratings. That was the bottom line until it cost them almost a billion dollars.
1: Basically, he was unsuccessful as a broadcaster until he discovered, oh, I can just do I can just take 4chan and put it on TV. He was there, Rush Limbaugh. By the way, um, you right now have J.D. Vance, saying this. I, have, I don't like this idea of having Fox move away from the MAGA movement. I think it would be such a huge mistake if the network chose to do that. I hope they stay loyal, stay loyal. So he's, he's telling them to keep doing it, keep selling out, uh, I guess keep lying about January 6th. And here is what uh, Abby Grossberg had to say uh, that, was, that were Tucker's next plans. This is his next move. Tucker's going to first have Kevin on, hear him beg and grovel, then we'll bring in Matt Gates, and Matt Gates will then kind of set his terms. Then Tucker will set his terms that McCarthy has to agree to. Tucker Carlson had terms. And then had McCarthy terms, had yeah, had terms. It. I mean, the challenge is, Charlie, Tucker so, believed, and probably yeah. rightly, that he controlled right. the Republican yes. Party. J.D. Vance, all the rest, they're all, they work for Fox, yes. right? And Fox works for whoever the wildest people in their base are, the craziest.
0: This is a key point because what you had here is is Tucker's uh, hubris—the fact that you know he had this overweening, uh, you know, uh, you know, sense of pride. He believed he was bigger than Fox. He believed he was the kingmaker. He believed that he could go on the air and make United States senators grovel because they would. He thought that he could um, that he could control the speakership of the House of Representatives because maybe he he could. He could get the the former president to do his his bidding. But the problem is that in Rupert Murdoch's world if it becomes clear that you Tucker Carlson think you are bigger than Rupert Murdoch he's going to have to correct the record here yeah. and i think that a lot of this had to, the, the 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 racism the misogyny the conspiracy okay theories the 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 putinism that was not the deal breaker the deal breaker was thinking that he was thinking bigger, you're bigger than himself think right.
2: you're big, and, and and you and you know po- but i bet you Go ahead, real quick. And the Republican and the Republican Party responded to it to Charlie's point. The Speaker of the House owes his speakership to groveling and selling his soul to MAGA and <laughs> their megaphone, right? Who yeah. was Tucker Carlson? This is who did, Kevin McCarthy gave forty thousand hours of January sixth footage yeah. to. Who he, he yeah, sold well. out our law enforcement officers to on that day and yeah. our democracy? That's and who the Republican Party is now.
1: And he would have groveled on his show. Let's just be clear. If they had booked that segment, he would have done the whole segment on his knees groveling. And everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. Tara St. Charlie Sykes. That's (laughs) shame, but it's real. Thank you very much. Up next on The Readout, Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock is here to talk about how today's deadly shooting in Atlanta hit him and his family very close to home. The Readout continues after this.
0: Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The
4: weekend.
1: We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening.
4: It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in.
3: Conversation, we begin and that you continue all week long. The weekend,
0: Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC.
1: Another day in the United States of America tragically means yet another mass shooting. This one in Atlanta, Georgia, at a medical facility. One person has died and four others are injured. Police are still searching for the suspected gunman. Just hours after the news of the shooting broke, Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock gave an emotional speech on the Senate floor.
4: I feel this this afternoon in a very real sense. I feel it in my bones because... My own two children were on lockdown this afternoon. I have two small children, and their schools were on lockdown responding to this tragedy. They are there. I'm here hoping and praying that they are safe. But the truth is, none of us is safe. As a pastor, I'm, I'm praying for those who are affected by this tragedy, but I hasten to say that thoughts and prayers are not enough. And in fact, in fact, it is a contradiction to say that you are thinking and praying and then do nothing. It, it, it is to make a mockery of prayer.
1: Joining me now is Senator Raphael Warnock, Democrat from Georgia. And, uh, Senator, thank you so much for being here. My uh, producers and I were watching uh, that speech um, from the Senate floor and immediately called your staff because uh, I think what you said was so profound and important. But I do want to ask about, you know, your kids and your community. How is everyone uh, doing? Because we I'm not sure if the suspect has even been caught yet.
4: Thank you so very much, Joy. Always good to be with you. I'm sorry that it's yet again under these circumstances, another day in America, another mass shooting. Tragically, this has become our reality, and I am afraid that we have become numb to it, uh, certainly inside of this building, which is why I thought it was so important for me to respond. I'm talking to folks that I know on the ground Uh, in Atlanta. People are texting me. They're traumatized. Yeah. All of us are traumatized.
1: Well, I mean, I'm with you. My kids have been through lockdowns uh, in Florida when they were young. They're grown now. I'm sort of thankful that they're grown and not in, uh, to be blunt, a red state, um, because I can't imagine how scary it is to take your children to school um, in this country right now, particularly in states that are awash in guns. And unfortunately, as much as we love Atlanta and as much as we all love Georgia, your state is one of them. I just want to read a couple of things here. The gun laws in the state of Georgia do not require background checks or permits to purchase handguns guns. They do not require a permit to carry a concealed gun in, in public. They do not require people with serious mental illness. They don't prohibit people with serious mental illness from having firearms. They do not prohibit people with violent misdemeanor convictions from having firearms. And they don't prohibit Convicted domestic abusers from having guns, and the only place you can't bring a gun is into a courthouse, jail, uh, place of worship, unless the governing body or worship place of worship allows it. Within an, a polling place, 150 feet um, inside a mental health facility, in a nuclear power facility, or onto a school grounds. But you can take a gun almost everywhere else, including into a bar. Well, How I- is Georgia safer with
4: all of that? It's not. And and ironically, I'll tell you this. Long before coming into the Senate, I was a, a pastor. I continue to serve. And as a pastor engaged in my community, every year I went to the Georgia legislature to address these terrible laws that made us ground zero, uh, kind of guns everywhere state. And here's the irony, Joy. Every time I went in the state office building or in, uh, to visit the state legislature, to make my case, I had to go through metal detectors because guns are not allowed in the legislature. They seem to think it's safe in houses of worship, in bars, restaurants, but not where the legislators work. Uh, and so here I am now in the United States Senate, and uh, there is a tragic disconnect between the conversation that's happening out in America. And our failure to act here in the Congress, this is an issue that I raised actually several days ago, and I have a uh, commitment uh, for the work, uh, or at least to continue the conversations that we need to have over the next few days within our caucus about what we have to do. Here, here is the thing, 87% of Americans, according to a Fox News poll, <laughs> believe that there ought to be universal background checks. Americans are closer on this issue on the left and the right than what's reflected in what we've been able to get done uh, in our government. There is an increasing chasm between what the people want and what they can get from their own government. So this is at root a democracy problem. It's a spiritual problem. And I won't rest until we get something done. And I don't have to listen to my six-year-old daughter, as she did today, having to explain to her dad uh, that today a bad man was shooting and we were on lockdown. I never had to have that conversation as a kid with my dad. And uh, I have an obligation as a father, first of all, to do something about it.
1: This is a young man. I should know that he was still on the loose on um, a military background, Coast Guard, 24 years old, um, was there with his mother and still shot and shot, shot four people. Most of the, those who were shot were women. One died. Um, that You were the crucial 51st vote um, that really broke the logjam inside of the United States Senate for Democrats on, on, on many issues. Are there right now enough votes among your 51 member caucus? to move aside the filibuster in order to pass the gun reform that you acknowledge and I know 80 plus percent of Americans want, background checks, 21-year age minimum, the things that we all agree on. Can that pass with 51 votes, at least get through a filibuster?
4: Well, last summer we passed uh, gun safety legislation on a bipartisan basis, the first time in 30 years. And while that bill was modest, it was an important step forward. And I think it was important for us to do that. And what we need to do now is to build on that work, because here's the thing. These shootings are happening all over America. It doesn't matter whether you live in a red state or a blue state. Doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican. Uh, It Certainly, uh, it's no respect of persons of skin color. A whole range of issues, although people of color are endangered in different ways, but But this is impacting all of us in our houses of worship, whether we're in churches or mosques or temples. So we ought to be able to come together. And I'm talking to all of my colleagues here in the Senate. I'm not willing to let anybody off the hook. Again, 87% of Americans on the left and the right believe that we ought to have universal background checks. And yet we have seen no movement here and we uh, we need a coalition of conscience. We need ordinary people at the grassroots to keep doing what they're doing. And as they fight on the outside, there are those of us who will be fighting the fight on the inside.
1: Are there nine Republicans who will join 51 Democrats or even are there 50? Because we know Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin exist. Are there 60 votes to pass gun reform in the United States Senate?
4: There certainly ought to be. And I will be doing everything I can as I'm, as I'm already doing, talking to all of my colleagues. This, this is a, a moral issue. Listen. If if we live in a country where our children aren't even safe, where they have to have active shooter drills as a normal part of their life, and we do nothing, the question for all of us is what kind of society are we? And what kind of freedom for those who say, well, we don't want you to somehow encroach on our freedom. It's a strange kind of freedom that sends your children on lockdowns on any random day of the week.
1: Amen. Amen to that. Um, A very uh, strong moral voice. uh, And your voice was very much needed today. Senator Raphael Warnock, uh, thank you. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate you being here.
4: Keep pushing. Keep
1: the faith. Thank you. We'll try. We will definitely try. And coming up, Oklahoma's governor bans transgender care for kids and is immediately slapped with a lawsuit by, you guessed it, transgender kids and their parents. We'll be right back.
4: Hey, it's
0: Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening, evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Paget, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that, that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Shin Saki.
5: Have you ever seen the house this dysfunctional?
0: Rachel Maddow.
5: If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it?
4: Monday's Back to Back.
5: Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think
0: it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC.
1: to mind when you think about animated children's shows like Clifford the Big Red Dog or Work It Out Wombats. Perhaps, how does a family clean up after the poops of a dog the size of their house? Or what is a wombat anyway? I bet you didn't think, hey, these shows are trying to sexualize my kids. Well, that is exactly what Oklahoma's Republican Governor Kevin Stitt claimed last week when he vetoed extending the license for the state's PBS station known as the Oklahoma Educational Television Authority.
4: I don't think Oklahomans want to use their tax dollars um, to indoctrinate kids. And some of the stuff that's, that, they're, that they're showing, it just overly sexualizes our kids.
1: So what depraved examples did the governor provide to explain the danger that Oklahoma children are in from watching this station? According to the Tulsa World, a spokesman for the governor sent information showing that the station promoted LGBTQ-focused Bride Month programming in recent years. The spokeswoman said Clifford and Work It Out Wombats included lesbian characters in some episodes. Oh, and they also sent a Fox News article that criticized a PBS NewsHour segment in which an Indiana couple talked about how gender-affirming care was beneficial for their daughter. No, no, this is not a joke. These are the actual reasons why the governor wants to shut down this popular station in his state. The feared indoctrination turns out to be about empathy for people who are different. Shocker. It's the latest example of a Republican governor attacking the LGBTQ and specifically the trans community. Not surprisingly, Stitt's desire to get in on his party's baseless crusade against these communities is coming at the expense of his fellow Oklahomans. He's not just taking away the educational benefits for Oklahoma kids of watching shows like Sesame Street, but this public television station is also a critical piece of the state's emergency alert system, warning about tornadoes and amber alerts and other disasters, especially for the state's many rural residents who don't have cable television. But I guess he believes that that is a small price to pay to, quote, own the lips. I'm joined now by Nicole McAfee, executive editor of Freedom, Oklahoma, and, and I would love for you to talk about that just for a moment, um, Nicole, because Oklahoma is a state with a lot of rural parts. What will happen if those large swaths of rural Oklahoma no longer have this PBS station? It's the only one.
3: Yeah, I think that for a lot of us, it's hard to even imagine an Oklahoma without OETA. Not only is it a, a center for so much news in terms of alerts and and things about weather, other things we're trying to learn. But for a lot of people, including a lot of young people who maybe don't have a ton of cable access, but can look up OETA, it's the source of a lot of legislative and policy news, too. It's where people watch the state of the state address by the governor each year. It's um, a place to plug in and get some real time information. And it would be a huge loss for so many of us um, to not have that. And what do you
1: think of this? I mean, it isn't just obviously in Oklahoma. He's just the latest governor to get in on this. But this idea of saying that just mentioning that a character is gay or showing that they're gay somehow in a kid's show, which is going to be the most benign way possible. It's a children's show that that is somehow indoctrinating and sexualizing children. Your thoughts on that, because that is a meme all across the Republican Party.
3: It is. And we're hearing it not just from Governor Stitt, but also from his state superintendent, Ryan Walters. Uh, this is is rhetoric that is all too familiar to Oklahomans, I think, when we talk about us LGBTQ plus community work in the state. So often people think back to Anita Bryant. And while many people think of her Save Our Children messaging as being really rooted in Florida, um, Anita Bryant is from Oklahoma originally. She retired to Oklahoma and As I've talked to community members over this last week, especially since this veto, there are so many older queer community members who thought we were past this part of the work, who thought that at least the very existence of queer people was no longer up for debate. And for it to be attacked in in such a, I think, shocking way for so many people, for it to be rooted in this attack on on our public broadcasting channel, I think is really difficult for people to wrap their heads around.
1: Well, and on gender-affirming care, I mean, you know, in his tweet, he talked about stopping surgeries for people under 18, which is not a thing. That is not a thing that happens. You're talking about counseling and in some cases, hormone therapy. However, they're still going to allow Doctors to perform surgery on intersex children who are born intersex, meaning doctors get to make a decision before the child is old enough to make a decision about their own body. They can do that, right? But they can't do this. And he's also done this thing where he's not allowing, although he claims to have um, indigenous heritage himself, not allowing young people to wear their indigenous clothing to their graduations. It feels like it's just erasure of everything that is not cis white Christian.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The the tribal regalia bill passed almost unanimously. I think there was a single no vote in the entire legislature. And when we think about the Oklahoma legislature to have that much agreement that this was necessary as a, a protection for Indigenous students to be allowed to wear regalia at graduations, to see him veto even that uh, with a specific message that he thought it was giving special privileges to Indigenous people when really it was just protecting access to regalia, I think was was certainly difficult to watch. I mean, he was the, the first Indigenous tribal citizen to be governor elected in the country and to then see him use so much of his power to ta- attack Indigenous communities in addition to queer and trans communities, um, I think is definitely a, a tough reminder that representation alone is not enough if people aren't dug into the work and, and connected with community.
1: Oh, absolutely. Listen, African-Americans have experienced that with Clarence Thomas for a really long time. Just because somebody is, you know, of your community doesn't mean that they actually care about your community. It just, it is an unfortunate, sad fact. Um, we will be paying attention to this story and hopefully y'all keep your PBS station. It is one of the best things about television, uh, PBS. Um, and working out Wombat sounds like a lot of fun. I'd love to watch that. Uh, Nicole McAfee, thank you. And coming up next, I wish that I could stop being surprised by the underhanded links for Republicans will go to grab and hold on to political power. (sighs) Well, maybe someday I live in hope. I'll explain in a second. The twice impeached, now indicted, former president accused of inciting an insurrection will be getting a primetime town hall on CNN next week. Who cares that he's under investigation for stealing classified documents and orchestrating an assault on our democracy? Who cares that he's promised to pardon the criminals convicted of beating police officers, defecating in the Capitol, and costing the American taxpayers more than $2 million in damages? Apparently, no one seems to care. These authoritarian tactics have been normalized by the MAGA party and by parts of the media. Just look at Texas Governor Greg Abbott. He has promised to pardon a man who was found guilty of murdering a Black Lives Matter protester. Why? Because Tucker Carlson told him to. And he wants to stick it to the libs. It doesn't matter if the guy posted racist stuff online and sought out underage girls on chat sites. Here's the thing. In this world of tribal politics, Republicans really are happy to rule with an iron fist. Every single day, we get new examples from states with Republican supermajorities across the country. The Texas legislature is advancing roughly a dozen bills, seeking to strip Democratic-leaning Harris County of most of its control over elections. One proposal would eliminate the position of the county election commissioner, which just happens to be a Democrat, and give the responsibilities to the county tax assessor, collector, and county clerk. Another proposal would allow them to suspend or terminate a county election administrator at any time for good and sufficient cause. And finally, and this one is a doozy, they want to pass a law that would allow the Secretary of State, who is handpicked by the governor, to redo any election in Harris County. You heard that right. This bill would allow a Republican to reject the results of an election in the largest Democratic-leaning county in the state, and the third largest in the whole country, and allow that Secretary of State to order a new election if they have good cause to believe that a number of locations ran out of ballot paper for more than an hour. And it's not just in Texas where Republicans are targeting blue cities by trying to strip them of their power. Tennessee and Mississippi want to strip large Democratic-leaning cities of home rule. In Florida, Missouri, and Pennsylvania, Republicans have removed or tried to remove elected prosecutors, effectively seeking to nullify local election results. And they aren't stopping there. In Ohio, Missouri, and Arkansas, Republicans want to make it harder to pass ballot initiatives to keep you from getting around their obstruction. Just because Donald Trump no longer is in the White House does not mean that the struggle against would-be authoritarianism is over. In fact, it is the lasting gift he left this country. Stay tuned after the break to hear just how the Supreme Court in North Carolina is helping him out. Last week, the newly minted conservative majority in the North Carolina Supreme Court reversed not one but two major decisions related to elections. This new court decided that state Republicans were free to gerrymander their district maps because it does not violate the state constitution. This ruling could effectively hand congressional Republicans an additional four U.S. House seats. Additionally, they reversed a decision relating to a 2018 voter ID law that the previous court said was infected with racial bias. The new conservative court has now set the stage to reinstate that law. These decisions are unprecedented. The previous court ruled on these cases literally just four months ago. The only thing that changed was the majority on the court. And I'm joined now by Janae Nelson, president and director counsel of the Legal Legal Defense Fund. And um, Janae, the thing is, what I think is disturbing to so many people is this realization that our courts now are basically just extensions of our politics. That when a conservative court is in place, they're just going to give you pro-Republican outcomes and then the reverse happens. One expects when they're liberal. I don't think the liberal courts seem to do it as egregiously. Is that where we're at now? Whenever there's a conservative set of justices, we're just going to get Republican outcomes?
5: You know, I can't speak to whether it's Democratic or Republican. What I can say is that, as you pointed out, the only difference between the decision that the North Carolina Supreme Court made just several months ago and the decision it made today is the composition of the court and the extremist conservative super majority that has taken hold. And it's such a dangerous precedent to not respect the earlier rulings of a body of a court that is not defined by the particular individuals who are on it at any given time. It's defined by a larger body of doctrine that evolves over time. And most importantly, that is an interpretation of the state's constitution, a constitution that has governed that state for many, many decades. And that has said that in order to preserve the right to vote in North Carolina, there must be some regulation of excessive partisanship and how the maps are drawn in that state, but what we saw is a change in the composition of the court, and j- they jettisoned a very consistent and logical interpretation of the state's constitution. It is hard to reconcile that with anything other than partisan politics, and I don't think that it is something we should just expect. In fact, it hasn't been the case for decades where. Courts change composition all the time, and they respect the precedent of prior courts. What we're seeing now is illiberal efforts by courts across the country, and North Carolina is just the most recent and one of the most egregious examples.
1: Well, I'm right, and I, I mean, you you can go back throughout history, and you know, dip, you really couldn't tell based on who um, nominated a particular jurist to the court how that court would rule. It wasn't so predictable. I think once after Bush v. Gore, I think that fundamentally changed. But with the Trump courts, the Trump justices, it seems to be even more egregious. than in the states as well, we now know how this is going to play out because there was one Democrat who switched parties, giving Republicans a supermajority, meaning that now they're going to go in and they're going to create a supermajority for Republicans in the state. Is there any point in trying to litigate this or the Harris County case when ultimately these cases would wind up at the Supreme Court, who's the most partisan of them all? Their majority is the most partisan of them all.
5: Well, you know, I think that these courts really force the Supreme Court to reckon with its own. Uh, declarations about deferring to state courts. We saw this in the reproductive justice context. We're seeing it now in the partisan gerrymandering context, where the court said not long ago in Rucho versus Common Cause that federal courts could not adjudicate partisan gerrymandering claims. But of course, if there's a state constitution or a state statute that allows for it, then states were perfectly able and lo- to lawfully regulate that. And now that the court is seeing this happening. I mean, the Supreme Court seeing this happening in states across the country where state courts are not honoring their constitution's principles. It really calls not only those state courts credibility into question, but the credibility of the Supreme Court when it, when it punts to state courts that they know will not be consistent and will exercise uh, their authority based on partisan
1: politics. I think the problem is, is that the reason people don't trust the, the courts, and particularly the Supreme Court and the state courts, is that it's very clear that they want very particular partisan outcomes. I'm just going to show our audience the most gerrymandered states in 2023. These won't surprise you. Uh, Wisconsin, Ohio, Kentucky, Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Utah and Florida. Um, are you hopeful that this trend can be reversed? Oh, we are actually out of time. I'm going to hold, I'm going to ask you to come back and we will talk again about whether we think this trend can be reversed. Janae Nelson, thank you very much. Um, Got right to the finish there. That is tonight's readout.
5: primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash PlanyourVote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash PlanyourVote today.